0: Good evening. It's 9 p.m. on the West Coast and you're tuned in to the ILEG Radio Show, coming at you live from the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley, broadcasting around the world on radio.ileducationgroup.org and ionglobalpolitics.com. Here's your host for the next hour, Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas.
1: Thank you so much for joining us on this lovely Sunday evening. Hope you're having a wonderful night wherever you are. Bakhmut in Ukraine is nearly surrounded on three sides. And there's no withdrawal order from Kiev. So what's going on there? What is happening in Bakhmut with all roads leading out blocked by Russian forces, except one. You have Ukrainian soldiers on videotape cursing their leadership, asking, why aren't we being withdrawn? Are we uh, being set up for another Mariupol? The question really has to be asked, does Zelensky, does the Ukrainian regime in Kiev care about its people? When there was a ceasefire floated for the Christmas, the Orthodox Christmas holiday, it was rejected by Kiev. It was proposed unilaterally by Moscow and Kiev rejected it. Russian opposition figure from the Yablika Party, Grigory Yavlinsky, a Russian economist who's been in the Russian opposition for a while, just wrote an op-ed in The Nation, dated February 9th, 2023, entitled Stop the Killing. And he, he's calling for a ceasefire, a ceasefire on all sides. And his last paragraph says, or one of the last paragraphs says. Uh, Declare a ceasefire. Stop killing people. A ceasefire agreement is not a treaty. It's not about peace and not even about a truce or large-scale dialogue. It is a political demand aimed at saving lives. That's the main thing today. A ceasefire agreement is the very first step toward a settlement. As long as there is fighting and people are dying, no attempts at discussion or negotiation are meaningful. Therefore, under the circumstances, a ceasefire agreement is required to make way for any positive development. And he goes on, it's a, it's a good article, but the thing is, there are no calls in the West for a ceasefire. Kiev is flatly rejecting any talks with Moscow, and Moscow is saying we're open to talks. If you're, you're realistic and you want to discuss some realistic solutions to this conflict, this bloody conflict, then let's talk. And that's been Moscow's position all along. Kiev is saying, we want to take back Crimea. We want to take back every bit of land that, uh, that they claim to be Ukrainian. Even though they were killing the people on that land for eight years in the Donbass. So this is the diplomatic stalemate here. You have one side that's backed by the West that's unwilling to negotiate at all until they achieve total victory. And Moscow is defending what it believes now is its territory in the four provinces in the four oblasts. And they're open to negotiations if the negotiations are deemed realistic. But you have a diplomatic stalemate here where one side is not willing to even talk. You have to you have to ask yourself, really, does Kiev care about its own people at all? Is this war being waged on television and on social media? Because when you have a city that's surrounded by on all three sides with one road leading out, and the noose that 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 time that hourglass is closing by the by the day to get out of there, they keep on saying, Bakhmut holds, never surrender, Bakhmut. It's it's the same as when you see a, a gambler at the at a table in in Las Vegas and losing over and over and, and they can't leave the table and then the, the keys to the car go on the table and the keys to the the house go and then the college tuition goes onto the table because they're doubling down on idiocracy on stupidity. The cost is not a car. The cost is not a house. In this instance, the co- cost is probably tens of thousands of lives, ten to 30,000 Ukrainian lives, uh, soldiers. But uh, you see videos of these Ukrainian soldiers cursing the leadership and saying basically after the war, you're next, the representatives. There's a number of videos out there like that, probably unverified, but there's enough evidence out there. There is an element of discontent. Videos of Soldiers being forced back into Bakhmut when they're saying, you know, we have no chance. Uh, we don't have even our battalion has disappeared. Well, this is all happening while Zelensky was traveling around Europe begging for more weapons and being patted on the back by by Western European leaders, by Macron and Schultz and, and, and the British Prime Minister and all the European Parliament members that are... You know, just giving him a free pass because they have so much Russophobia in them that they don't care if they destroy Ukraine. They don't care if they dismember it as long as they try to hurt Russia. Because the minute you start giving Ukraine more long-range missiles, what you're in fact doing is further dismembering Further breaking apart Ukraine, any chance that Ukraine is going to be a viable country in the future? Because Russia is going to want to protect its territory that it claims it is that it's its territory now. the The more long range missiles that are given to Ukraine, the further Ukrainian forces have to be pushed back, so they can't reach Russian territory. the The bigger the buffer zone becomes. And the bigger the buffer zone becomes, the less viable a state Ukraine begins to look like in the future. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Give me a call at one eight 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 nine 888 ileg Leave me a voicemail or a comment at comments at ionglobalpolitics.com.
0: You're listening to the ILEG radio show with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas, broadcasting live on radio.ileducationgroup.org and I on globalpolitics.com.
1: The standard line in, in, in the West has been that the world is opposing Russia, which that just simply isn't true. Africa, for instance, way back in March of 2022, after the wider escalation the wider war occurred the vote in the u.n general assembly 17 out of the 35 countries that abstained were african and one voted against and eight african countries didn't vote at all that's really a a, a telling statement of the feeling of angst opposition against the west and the history of Uh, all the way up until the present, of their dealings with Africa, with it being a hierarchical, patriarchal relationship, dealing with Africa, exploiting their resources, and not dealing with Africa as a partnership. And the Soviet Union, going back to the 1960 Declaration of Independence uh, for Colonial Peoples, the, the Soviet Union supported that and supported throwing off the yoke of colonialism, and the Soviet Union wasn't colonializing Africa like the Europeans were, and in the, in the, in the Americans with neo neocolonialism. There's a different relationship there with Africa and Russia, as opposed to Africa and the West. There's a, there's a different mentality, where Africans, the ones that I've heard that are supporting Russia are saying well Russia is dealing with us on an equal footing on a transactional level where where it's it's beneficial for us and it's beneficial for them and and, and it's a mutual it's a business transaction well the west is dealing with africa in an exploitative manner and that's been the history and history has shown that that has been the case that the west has exploited the developing world and we can see that It's interesting, in in December, on December 14th, 2022, there was a UN General Assembly resolution on having a new economic world order. And it was entitled Towards a New International Economic Order. The entire West, the collective West, that means Europe, Australia, the United States, Canada, and throw in Japan and South Korea in there, they voted against it and the rest of the world voted for it and when i mean the rest of the world i, I mean the rest of the world they all voted for it only turkey abstained so it's uh was it, quite telling to see that the rest of the world is saying hey something's wrong with the economic order as far as the 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 debt of developing countries how they're dealt with uh vis-a-vis be, be the, the Western powers, the Western countries, the finance mechanisms, the, in general, the international economic order. And it's a, it's a fairly lengthy document, and I l- encourage you to go look at that. That's December 14th on the UN General Assembly Resolution. That was passed by, I believe, 120, 50 countries opposed it, and uh, 123 supported it. 124 with two abstentions, Armenia and Turkey abstained. Yeah, it's quite telling. It's quite telling that the entire world would vote for something for a new economic world order and, and just the West would vote against it and the West in its entirety, the entire European Union. And so that tells me they want to hold on to their economic exploitative system that they've been able to leverage for their own benefit at, not for the benefit of the poor in their countries but for the benefit of the elite in their countries at the expense of the developing countries who they don't really care if they stay poor and uh, stay subjugated
0: you're listening to the ileg radio show with dr paul fj aranyas Broadcasting live on radio.ileducationgroup.org and i on globalpolitics.com.
1: There's a, uh, a guy in, in Ukraine. His name is Vitaly Alesenko. He had his appeal rejected by the Ivano Frankivsk Appeal Court. He's a 46 year old Christian and he's a conscientious objector. He said, I told the court I agree that I have broken the law of Ukraine, but I am not guilty under the law of God. So he's sentenced to a year in prison. I've seen others that said three years. But Ukraine uh, suspended the right to conscientious objection to military service at the start of martial law. Of course, that is an international human rights violation under Article 18 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is non-derogable in time of public emergency. That's according to Article 4.2 of the ICCPR. And there's no derogation possible when it comes to freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. Now, there's there are uh, limitations... That have to be proven and there's a high standard to prove it when they're the manifestation of that religion so you want to act and do something in, 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 as far as manifesting your religion and if it's against public health or uh, a safety hazard or something like that then that practice can be limited just like polygamy was limited by uh, by the united states by u.s domestic law from the mormons back in the late 19th century they said that was part of our religion they said no it doesn't it's not uh in line with public morals and with the society so therefore you can believe what you want but you cannot take on multiple spouses when it comes to freedom of conscience and freedom of religion though there there's there's a high bar and and this has to be met and there is there's a has to be proportional and it has to be prescribed in law and there's a there's a number of steps that have to take place if you're going to limit a, a a manifestation of belief, but the belief itself can never be limited under international law. Freedom of conscience and opposing military service is one bar that is is a part of that human rights architecture that is very difficult or is non-derogable, it's part of the conscience of of one's belief that you cannot make someone go and kill because of a public emergency if this is a truly held conviction. There's a lot to talk about that, the legal history in the United States and, and things like that and elsewhere, but basically Ukraine has suspended that right for all Ukrainians to hold that belief. But that's in line with what they're doing with with the churches. They're raiding monasteries and have arrested dozens of priests, allegedly for singing the wrong song or, or having literature that dates back years that is seen as pro-Russian. So basically they've limited all freedom of expression. All television is going into one channel right now. They've got one channel. Political parties have been the mostly leftists or anything seen as pro-Russian parties, 11 parties, banned, closed. Opposition media, banned, closed. And so there is no democracy, and they want to blame it on martial law, but they are going after things that that are not uh, acceptable to, to uh, limit, even under martial law, even under the worst circumstances. And one of those being the freedom of religion the freedom to hold sincere beliefs of conscience one would ask what about russia what do, where do they stand on conscientious objection there's actually a there was a court case just a few months ago the individual in question st petersburg there was a convinced pacifist and evangelical christian pavel mushmansky and he had been a conscientious objector for his his routine service his military service that he was required to to undertake in 2019 but he was given alternative service so when he was drafted he was drafted he he took it to court and his military service was canceled as a conscientious objector so the Russian court upheld his conscientious objector status now it's expected to go into the constitutional court to decide the right on alternative service during mobilization for for everyone else that is that's as far as i know on that that case so there is the right to conscientious objection in russia but not in ukraine right now and so ukraine is claiming to be the democratic country and lambasting russia as you know some autocracy but yet they don't have conscientious objection and russia does right now this man in ukraine has been convicted this is vitaly Lesenko. so i encourage you to look into that and to voice your opinion on allowing him to have his conscience provided for <laughs>
0: you're listening to the ILEG radio show with Dr. Paul FJ Aranyas broadcasting live on radio.ileducationgroup.org and i on globalpolitics.com
1: a lot of countries are picking sides on this this issue of russia some are remaining neutral the african countries like i said are uh, using this to try to have a little leverage in their in the way they're international relations are conducted, and some in the European academic sphere are claiming that it's some sort of uh, strong strong arm that Russia has over African countries with their security assistance on the African continent. You know, that kind of goes right in line with the general attitude toward anything that has a counter-argument in the West about this situation, that it has to be something to do with being paid off or propaganda or something else. It can't be a reasoned argument, because reasoned arguments are intolerable now in the West, intolerable in the mainstream media. They can't cope with reasoned arguments. It has to be either my opinion is right or you're paid by Russia, or Russia's giving you some security benefits, it can't be because they detest your history on the African continent, or detest your history in Latin America or the Middle East, or detest your hypocrisy and double standards. While the Palestinians are massacred year after year, decade after decade, and the West Smiles, looks the other way, makes some little gesture, a diplomatic gesture, so they don't appear completely inhumane. While they shovel arms to, to conflict zones that massacre people by the hundreds of thousands. While they look away from conflicts that kill millions, like in Congo in the late 90s, the 5 million plus killed, well it never even registers on the mainstream media, maybe a blip in the New York Times on page 3. And now we're to believe that there is some big compassion for the Ukrainian people. If there is a compassion for the Ukrainian people, why not call for a ceasefire? Why not call for a ceasefire and demand a ceasefire, as uh, Yablinsky Yavlinsky's just said? Uh, it's not a peace settlement; it's basically to stop the killing. Anybody in power, I can imagine, if I were in power, w- just transported all of a sudden into uh, the shoes of a uh, uh, head of state in Kiev, my first reaction would be to. Limit the suffering. My first reaction would be to have the guns drawn down. And yet, these extremists in Kiev, their first reaction is to go around the world and beg for more escalatory measures. Beg for more weapons. They want planes now. They got tanks. As soon as they got tanks, they wanted planes. It started with helmets. The Germans gave them helmets. Then they gave them... Heavier weaponry and artillery, the U.S. gave them helicopters and radar and intelligence. And now, in the in the in the Washington Post, there is a, a basically an article saying that it's the United States providing the intelligence for every HIMARS strike that Ukraine does, and Ukraine calls it in, and they don't do it without Washington's approval. And there's some. some disagreement. Washington saying no. The military is saying no. Well no we don't have to approve it. But basically it's a de facto approval because they don't fire unless Washington gives them the coordinates. And this is coming from a US military base somewhere on the European continent in a NATO country. The escalation and the refusal to talk continues. And it's just like common sense. If you're a head of state and you actually care about limiting the suffering of your people and you talk about it about, oh, my people are suffering, and you continue to escalate without even, even a, a, a glimmer, even a, a bit of a, a, a word spoken toward a ceasefire, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Because these people are extremists. And we saw them killing their own people. They don't care about their own people because they killed their own people, the Ukrainian people in the East, for eight years. In February 2022, they escalated that. And the OSCE monitors documented the escalation of, of strikes on civilian population right before Russia went in on February 24th. So how can we talk about a U- Ukrainian people when the Ukrainian people are seemingly held hostage by a a government that doesn't care for them? And one can say, well, you know, Russia can go back to, to where it was uh, last year. But in Russia's mind, they're dealing with an existential threat. And this is what John Mearsheimer is talking about, he's saying that Russia is from its perspective and it doesn't matter what you think he's saying he's saying that well, from Russia's perspective they're dealing with an existential threat and they're also protecting what they see as Russian ethnic Russians that are being have been slaughtered for a long period of time by this extreme government in Ukraine and so where do we go from here if Russia is seeing this as an existential threat The West doesn't want a ceasefire, doesn't want anything except total victory. And either Russia is going to come and finish the war, finish it to an extent that, you know, a lot more, hundreds of thousands of more Ukrainian soldiers will die, Ukraine capitulates, or you're dealing with a war that has the potential to escalate to a nuclear situation. God forbid. So you have people, and in, in, in you see this all over social media, just saying, well, Ukraine is defending Europe. That if Ukraine wasn't there, then Russia's going into Poland, then to Germany, then they're all, all of a sudden, they're in Spain. As John Mearsheimer says, and I, and, and I agree, there is no proof of that whatsoever. Not in Putin's statements, not in his actions, nothing. There is no proof that he wants to make a greater Russia and to go beyond that and extend into NATO territory and take over Germany. There is no proof that he's sitting in his words or his deeds, in the type of force that he's put out there. When Germany went into Poland in 1939, they went in with 1.5 million troops. When Russia went into Ukraine, a country of what, forty-four million people, they went in with a hundred and ninety thousand troops. And as we talked about last episode, you know that was going in compared to what the United States did in Iraq, going in with with gloves on because they went into a country that they see as their fellow Slavs, brotherly Ukrainians, where they want to minimize civilian casualties and liberate them from from a extremist group that have taken over the country. That's their perspective. That's what's the Russian perspective is. And there's no proof anywhere that they have an intent on on rolling into NATO countries to to subdue NATO countries. And yet this is the type of stuff that you hear commonplace all over social media. And when I say social media, I'm talking about like LinkedIn as well, We're talking about professionals. People that have, you know, legitimate professional established careers, not some guy falling off his bar stool. And these are these are people that have been thoroughly brainwashed to think that that Russia wants anything more than security, the save time of security that that uh, that the West wants and doesn't want their ethnic Russians to be killed and to be slaughtered like they were on a a daily basis for eight years. And you have to wonder about the critical thinking in the West, the fact that this is just plain and simple out there that anybody can research and, and find the facts. I mean, you can look at all of Putin's statements. You can listen to his speech going back to 2008 in the Munich Security Conference where he laid out the fact that this unipolar world was disregarding the security of others including the Russian Federation and that the world cannot stand like that given the rise of other countries given the rise of of Russia the rise of China the rise of other economic powers which will turn into economic power will turn into political power and it has turned into political power One only has to look at China to see the rise of their political influence on the international stage. And yet, time and time again, the West just disregarded these pleas for a mutual security architecture and ended up here, where now they're doubling down on trying to have total victory against Russia. And, you know, what, what's going to happen is a lot more people are going to, to die in this, this war. And that's because Ukraine and the West don't even want to open negotiations. They want something that's highly unrealistic. Now, for me, I'm, I'm against war, period. Yeah, I want everyone just to put down their weapons because it's wrong to kill. But in the real world, you have to have some compromise in order to solve a situation. You have to look at the perspective of the other and stop looking at it through your your eyeballs where it's been propagandized so much that you think that's something there that isn't there. You think that Russia is trying to take over the world, trying to take over Europe, and it just doesn't bear out in facts. What does bear out in facts is that NATO has pushed and pushed and pushed and propped up an illegal uh, regime in 2014, and successive regimes clamped down on anything Russian, discriminated against anything Russian in Ukraine, and killed ethnic Russians on a large scale. And this went on and on and on, and then they upticked right before Russia went in, and Russia went in. Like I said, war is wrong. War is always tragic, but in, in in the real world, as I always say, we don't the world isn't comprised of St. Francis's. The world has largely rejected in practice the gospel message of "Turn the other cheek. And so if you want to limit war, you have to look at the world and And understand that there needs to be an assessment of the facts on the ground and try to make a compromise. Understand the root problems of a conflict. And that is the basis of any normative definition of peace building is to look at the root causes. Unfortunately, when you look at the root causes of this conflict in Ukraine, you're labeled in the West as a Putin apologist, as a... A troll, a bot, all these things, because the West has lost the ability to critically think about an issue, because they are they are not taught to critically think. And what their media says, which is controlled by corporate interests, which is controlled by big corporate interests, a part of which is the military-industrial complex, and which controls the media, and when you have an education system, that doesn't teach critical thinking, and that puts out a carrot to to get rich, and to to get all the little toys in life, the material toys and material uh, hedonism. That you have to go along and get along and don't rock the boat, because when you rock the boat, you're made. You see the examples that are made of people who rock the boat, the Kaepernick's, the uh, the Kaepernick has enough money still to take care of himself because he rocked the boat after he was a millionaire. But there are plenty of people that rock the boat that are not millionaires that end up in the poorhouse or end up struggling day to day to trying to find work. So that's how they get you in, in the West. They don't necessarily throw you in jail, although that has happened in Guantanamo Bay. That's a separate issue, things like that. But what they do is they hit you in the pocketbook and they don't teach you how to critically think in the school. So they're coming at you from all sides, and so when the military industrial complex has a pet project that they want to uh, to continue funding, you get no pushback in the media. And at the same time you have the historical Russophobia because the corporate interest in this country, the business interest don't like any competitors. And so what they feel is democratic is making the world safe for US and Western business interests. And anybody that does that, it doesn't doesn't jive, doesn't go along with that plan, then they're undemocratic. And it doesn't really matter if they're voted into office or not. There have been plenty of examples when someone's been voted into office democratically and they've been labeled an autocrat or a uh, dictator because they opposed U.S. business interests in their countries. And you can think of Hugo Chavez. You can think of uh, Allende in Chile, or Arbenz in Guatemala. There are plenty of examples along that line to show that the West doesn't actually care about democracy. They care about economic, economic gain, profit, corporate profiteering for the elite. And how they sell that to the, to the sheep, the sheeple amongst the, the, the population is by calling it democracy. By spreading democracy. And can you call the United States a democracy when you have uh, to choose between two rich... Billionaires, multimillionaire candidates, more likely now billionaires, uh, with more or less the same foreign policies, more or less the same economic policies. When it gets down to it, yeah, there's some differences, but when push comes to shove, there's they're they're quite similar down the mainstream of of both parties. That's why we still don't have health care, universal health care. They'll shift it a little to the left shift it to the right but they'll never give everyone their basic human right of health care of universal health care of single-payer health care because that will go against the thrust of both parties which is protecting big business corporate interests and so when they talk about democracy in ukraine ukraine is not a democracy it's the furthest thing from a democracy it's it's one of the most corrupt countries on on planet earth the most corrupt country in europe and it has doesn't have a free press doesn't have a free political system it doesn't have freedom of religion now it doesn't have freedom to object to military service under martial law you can go on and on and on the pushback against nazism in the country people say there's there's no nazis in the country when it's widely documented that there's a huge nazi problem it was widely documented in the western press and after thinking about it how can people dismiss the overwhelming evidence of neo-nazism within the military within the political structure in ukraine and if you think about it a lot of them don't think of themselves as nazis I mean, some of them do. They'll brandish the swastika. But they actually don't think of themselves as Nazis. They think of themselves as nationalists. And these nationalists have the same agenda as Nazis in a different era. If you look at, if you replace the word Jew in Ukraine, Ukrainian society with, uh, you just place it with Russian, and this is before the war, before this wider war. It's a, the it's a same type of deal. You know, we, in Odessa, they had the right-wing Nazi hoodlums, thugs trap scores of 150 or so uh, young labor activists. In, in a building, in a union building, and set the building on fire. And scores were, were killed, burnt alive, falling from the building. And you'd think something like that would register in the Western mainstream media, that it would be headlines, but it wasn't, because that was done by a client state. These are the same people, the same type of people that came into power after the coup. How do you have young teenagers and activists being burnt in a building in Europe, they call Ukraine Europe, and it doesn't register on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News with headlines? How does that occur? Because they were pro-Russian? It's the same reason why it, the, the war in the Donbass was an invisible war in the West. It's because there's so much hypocrisy, so many double standards, that an adversary, innocent civilians being killed by a client state, doesn't matter. It, their lives are, are worthless from the Western mainstream that's why the the US could support the contras in in Nicaragua and and have them go in there they were so unpopular that they had to be based in in neighboring Honduras and they'd come across and do these raids and do these horrific atrocities horrific atrocities there are many examples of this and yet That didn't register with the mainstream. And and there's so many examples that when the U.S. and the West support a dictator who is good for U.S. business interests but kills his own people, it doesn't register on on the mainstream. But when when an autocrat or even a Democrat, small d, opposes the U.S., Every little aspect of their, their existence, of their policy, is scrutinized. And the others, the friendlies, are ignored. This is why we're here. Because there's no morality in politics in Washington, in London, in Paris, in Berlin. They don't care about right or wrong. They care about profits. And they don't care about the Ukrainian people, otherwise they'd be calling for a ceasefire. Can you imagine not even being willing to to call for a ceasefire, to, to adhere to a ceasefire on Christmas? There's always an excuse. Oh, well, it's just they're biding time or they want to re- let Russia regroup. It's like... Their morals in the West are dictated by everybody else. That they don't have any standard of themselves. If they had any moral values, it's they, they are the ones that should have been calling for the ceasefire. They should have said to Ukraine, Washington should have, should have said to Ukraine, call for a ceasefire on Christmas. It was Russia that called for it, and then Ukraine rejects it, saying, oh, it's just a ruse by Russia or they're not being genuine. Their moral values are so skewed that that even when someone else calls for something that's positive, they turn it off right away. It can't be. It, it, it's it's just a ruse or something else. But in fact, if they had any moral fiber about them, they should be calling for it themselves. They should be initiating it. Washington should be saying, put down your arms. Paris should be saying, put down your arms. Instead, they're talking about tanks and weapons. And, and, and while Russia is saying, we're willing to negotiate. We're willing to talk that is an opening. They don't want to talk until they get Crimea. Well, you know what? They're putting their their soldiers into into the flames. That's what they're doing. And I believe the videos that are out there of Ukrainian soldiers cursing their leadership. What would you think of your country when you're you're surrounded on all three sides in Bakhmut? And Your government refuses to call for a withdrawal. refuses to retreat. Because it'll look bad politically. I believe those videos, even if they're unverified, because it's logical. And even if the ones that are out there are something else, which I, I doubt they are, I can only imagine soldiers being surrounded and being told you can't go anywhere. You have to you have to stay there as a, a lamb to the slaughter. The sad situation. It's a sad situation, and the West needs to wake up, but I don't think it's going to because we've been through this year after year, decade after decade, and the critical thinking just does not exist in the West. Only from a minority that have broken free from the uh, the grip of, of propaganda, of the, from the grip of mental and emotional manipulation by the media. They don't talk about options. They don't talk about context. They don't talk about possible avenues out of uh, a war of, of things that could happen, the things that could make the situation better. All they do is tell you what should happen. They put on retired generals, retired military officials. And the interesting thing is, no matter how many times these people are wrong, no matter how many times they go on the air on mainstream media and tell you that this is going to happen and it doesn't happen, that there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and there are none, and the U.S. commits a war crime and aggression on it, magnitude, incomprehensible. No matter how many times that happens, they still come back and are still on the air. And you have to wonder, why is that? Why are they allowed to continue to come back on mainstream media and spew nonsense, spew false analysis and not be called out upon it? How can you have people that supported the war in Iraq and said there were weapons of mass destruction? You got John Bolton on there all the time on mainstream media. How can you have these people continually come back and reappear even though they're wrong time and time again? And that's because they're doing the bidding of the military industrial complex. And as long as you do that, you can say whatever you want, whether you're right or wrong or anywhere in between and you'll be invited back. You speak out against the military-industrial complex, and you're right, you'll never be invited back, or rarely invited back. It'll be a quite a rare exception to be invited back after you go against the military-industrial complex in the United States. Thank you for joining me. Again, as always, as always, keep the faith.
0: You're listening to the ILEG Radio Show with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. Broadcasting live on radio.ileducationgroup.org and I on globalpolitics.com.